Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of my podcast. You know, there are lies, there are damn lies, and there are lies masquerading as both journalism and politics. We've got a lot of the latter lately. Let me say that first, lies in the press can span the complete political spectrum, and yes, the left does on occasion lie. Need to establish that. It's not just the right wing. However, the right wing is, with its echo chamber and system of ping-ponging utter foolishness, having a particular problem with the truth. The stories are mounting up with each passing day of Joe Biden's presidency. How about we start with a couple of fake news stories about the president and the vice president. First, the trope that Biden's climate control plan would force Americans to eat less meat. Force Americans to eat less meat. Not a little, but a lot. What's worse, at least one member of Congress and two sitting governors have helped spread that lie. And then, of course, there's Fox News. The general idea is that cutting emissions would mean a red meat cut of 90% by all Americans. That would be something on the order of one burger a month. Now, Biden's opposition knows there's nothing that would anger the public worse than being told how many burgers they're allowed to eat. Now, you could make an argument that that's a little whack, but it's true. You tell Americans you can't have burgers, you can't put those things on the barbecue grill, and you'd have a revolution in this country. Make no mistake about that. Yet, the fact of the matter is the story is totally false. Not just false, but demonstrably false. And yet Fox News, Fox Business, and other right-wing media that call themselves news outlet reported this nonsense as news. Maybe it would be instructive to trace how this whole thing started in the first place. Last year, a University of Michigan study revealed, among other scenarios, that a 90% reduction in beef consumption combined with a 50% drop in consumption of other meats would result in a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions associated with agriculture. That's right, a 50% reduction. That's half. However, the three co-authors of the study made a couple of very salient points once the right wing had started to use their study. One, it was released in January 2020, before Joe Biden even won the Democratic nomination for the presidency. In fact, One of the co-authors said, quoting here, it's just all sensational goo from Fox and Friends. It wasn't just Fox's morning show, though. In rapid succession, Larry Kudlow, Charles Payne, Jesse Waters, Sean Hannity, and Janine Pirro all jumped on board. It even went as far as Fox alleged journalists like White House correspondent John Roberts, anchor Shannon Bream, and correspondent Kevin Cork. They all got in on this. And where did they all get their information? That's when it gets even more twisted. It came from an article in the British tabloid, the Daily Mail. Leaving aside for the moment the Mail's reputation for factual inaccuracy, particularly about climate issues, the real story here is why all these people at Fox News, Fox News, no less, not Fox Entertainment, Fox News, they trumpeted this Biden burger story without the slightest bit of fact-checking. 
If they had gone as far as to talk to the authors of the report they cited, that story might never have aired. Or would it? This is both journalism and opinion at their common low point. No fact-checking, no confirmation, just simply spreading a lie. This is a classic gambit by people who have completely run out of policy arguments. It's not far from here to wokeness and cancel culture. It's all about owning the liberals. Lying to convince like-minded people of ridiculous claims is simply part of their strategy. Not convinced? Let's talk about the lies surrounding Vice President Kamala Harris's book, Superheroes Are Everywhere. This one really set the right wing off. After all, the Vice President was tasked with helping to stem the wave of migrant children at the U.S. border, and here she was profiting off her book, which was allegedly included in welcome kits given to children at a shelter in Long Beach, California. But again, the right-wing narrative fell apart on close scrutiny, yet not before it made the front page of the Fox-owned New York Post. From there, it was spread through the usual suspects, including a number of Republican elected officials and media outlets, to the point that it was the basis of a Fox News reporter's question at a White House press briefing. That's right, a lie was the basis for a Fox News reporter's question at a White House press briefing. Fact was, a single copy of the vice president's book was donated to that shelter in Long Beach, California. It was not included in welcome kits. No way, no how. No profit for Kamala Harris, nothing. In fact, the New York Post had to revise its original story. And the woman who wrote it, Laura Italiano, not only quit the paper, but said she was ordered to write the piece in the first place. This lie reportedly started when a photographer on a tour of the facility took a picture of the book alongside a couple of others. Why the Post decided to make the leap to assert it was included in welcome kits is as yet unknown. The one common point with the Biden story is, of course, media owned and controlled by Fox. The Biden story had to be revised by Fox News anchor John Roberts to acknowledge the meat thing was not part of Biden's climate change agenda. In media parlance, that's called walking back a story. One might suppose these revisions, with no shame, aren't a problem in this day and age. After all, news outlets have, among other things, promoted the notion that Donald Trump was the actual winner of last year's election. On that note, Newsmax, a right-wing cable outlet that tries to out-fox Fox, just settled a lawsuit brought by an executive at Dominion Voting Systems. It accused Newsmax of broadcasting voter fraud allegations, and in settling the suit, Newsmax admitted there was no evidence to back up any of it, especially the part where they said the executive admitted rigging the election in a conference call with Antifa. That crazed claim was echoed by former Trump mouthpiece Sidney Powell, also the subject of that lawsuit. Why on God's green earth do people whose job it is to transmit factual information to the public lie like this? Just as important, why does the public believe it? There are still substantial parts of the Republican electorate who think the election was stolen in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. 
Is it that people can't let go of strongly held beliefs? I believe that's called cognitive dissonance, a concept explained to me by the brilliant black academic professor Len Jeffries. It certainly explains a lot, in particular why so many people fell for the snake oil served by our previous president. In the past, I've spoken about the need to get information from several sources. It's never been needed more than now. Unless, of course, you just want to consume news that completely conforms to your existing beliefs. If so, good luck with that. And, equally sad to say, there are elected officials who also go all in on lies. You mentioned a couple of them earlier. In fact, it looks like Republicans are making the lie that Trump won the 2020 election a litmus test for continued membership. As the Washington Post has opined, does that make the elected base of the Republican Party suckers or liars or maybe both? Witness what they're trying to do to Congressperson Liz Cheney. For speaking the truth about the election, she has all but lost her post as the only woman in the House Republican leadership. Mind you, there are many policy positions on which a progressive, certainly like me, might disagree with her. Saying Donald Trump lost last year's election is not one of them. Republicans, on the other hand, are ready to dump her for telling the truth. And it will, it's instructive to see how far they're gone, because instead, Republican leaders are promoting New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who's far more in Trump's corner, but even she isn't far right enough for some politicians and some pundits. It doesn't seem like all this lying will have consequences in the short term. Some of these liars will remain in office and win future elections. Certainly, the pundits promoting various lives won't lose their jobs over that alone. Yet history will look back on the Trump presidency and its aftermath and shake their heads. I've hesitated to say this before, but the Democratic Party, moderate and progressive, now have to not only call out the lies coming from the right, but to destroy, politically, the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party. If that means destroying the party, so be it. We now have the specter of two congressional liars, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, going on a tour of America. What's the matter? Lauren Boebert busy? Maybe she's out shooting something. Enough already, and I do mean enough. We really, really have to do something about this. And please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I am not talking about violence. I am not talking about anything like the kind of thing that happened in storming the Capitol. What I'm talking about is political adjustments to the careers of many of these people. When we come back, has the COVID-19 pandemic changed the way we look at work? This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. As the nation slowly recovers from a pandemic that took 580,000 lives and counting, there are signs that a large number of people are rethinking their work careers along with their lives. This was borne out by the disappointing number of jobs added in the country for the month of April. 
there was anticipation in the Biden White House and among some economists that maybe a million people would be returning to work. Instead, new jobs clocked in at an anemic 266,000. This is just a tiny number of the 8.2 million jobs lost to COVID. That, by the way, is about the same size as the city of New York. As one would expect, Republicans and Democrats differ on what all this means. As you might expect, the GOP and many in the business world say that stimulus checks and generous unemployment payments have created a situation where low-paid workers are less likely to go back to unfulfilling jobs. Democrats argue that higher pay would lure workers back to the jobs they had pre-pandemic. Maybe they are both right to some extent. We're seeing in some Republican-led states, governors cutting off supplemental unemployment benefits in an effort to drive people back to work. Good luck with that. Now, labor shortages, however, are cropping up all over the country and in many different job categories. Wall Street, oddly enough, ignored the bad job creation news. They apparently think the numbers are an outlier. They're not alone in that, by the way. What may be more important is the question of whether people are actually asking if the jobs they're working are where they want to be. One glaring number jumps out about the April figures. Job gains went overwhelmingly to men. The number of women employed are looking for work fell by 64,000, fell by 64,000. Even in a jobs picture where there were 266,000 jobs added. Maybe that's a sign that affordable childcare is still a big issue. And by the way, uh, uh, an issue that could easily be fixed with some form of government subsidy. You wanna subsidize something? Subsidize women in the workplace. Make sure they have affordable quality daycare for their children. Childcare, it doesn't have to be daycare because some women work you know, the night shift or the day shift, whatever. But we don't have that in this country. And the question then becomes, what will politicians do if people start reassessing their work-life balances and the U.S. employment landscape changes permanently? We've seen a lot of changes during the course of the pandemic. What if some of those changes are in fact permanent? And right now, we can't be absolutely certain which will be permanent and which one, which ones that is, might be temporary. There's some evidence that people who can prefer a hybrid in office slash work from home schedules, their work schedules. Now, again, there are people who work two days in the office, three days at home, three days uh, at home and two days in the office. There's a lot of different permutations to this. And not everyone can actually do a work from home, work in the office situation. You know, people who drive buses, people who run trains, people who do that sort of work, they don't have the luxury of working from home. So we need to be very, very clear about that. Because a lot of times people have a tendency to look at these issues solely within the lens of people who have relatively good paying jobs, I might add and do have options in their work situations. Not everybody does. Now, 
it's interesting that there's some evidence that people who can prefer a hybrid work in office, work from home, work schedule have actually taken into account some of the knock on effects that flow from changes like this. Certainly, if the workers haven't, their employers have. As businesses in major cities allow hybrid working, the demand for office space decreases. Small businesses that depend on office workers like restaurants, delis and such would end up having less foot traffic and in theory, less business. This has happened during the pandemic. Part of what may determine the future of the American workforce is how quickly the economy opens up and whether employers think at-home productivity is the same as productivity in the office. The other part lies in the hands of the workers themselves and whether this will or can be a transformational moment in our collective history. And believe me, no matter what people may tell you, the jury is still way out on that particular issue. When we come back, I pay tribute to my brother Norman, who tragically passed away last week. This is The Intersection. Welcome back to The Intersection. My brother Norman was truly a unique individual. He cut an extraordinary path across this life, creating and giving in equal measure. He passed away last week at the age of 67. From the time we were kids, Norman looked to do things his way, and he was very stubborn about doing things his way. That meant drawing from an enormous wellspring of personal creativity that, as he became an adult, allowed him to pursue several disciplines at the same time. He was a writer, a poet, a musician, and an educator. He approached each with purpose and a dedication to excellence that was apparent to each life that he touched. Yet this doesn't provide the total picture of my brother. As kids, I was struck by the fact that he would just about eat anything. And by that I mean anything. If I, the picky eater, didn't want something, I just gave it to Norman. Beyond that, the love all three of us had for music was developed early through both our parents and marching in a Fife Drum and Bugle Corps in the town where we were raised, Newtown, Connecticut. My sister played the Fife, and today, all these years later, is quite proficient at playing the flute. Norman learned drumming in that drum corps, and everyone who knew him saw that love of percussive arts blossom and flourish throughout his life. Norman's love of literature was nurtured during his high school years at a school then called the Gunnery, now called the Frederick Gunn School. His militant advocacy was honed in neighboring Danbury, Connecticut at a program called Breakthrough Harambe. He made lifelong friendships there and learned the finer points of percussion from the great Bill Curtis. Having moved to New York, Norman began to work at the Henry Street Settlement's new federal theater where he worked with the legendary Woody King Jr. He began to meld music with poetry as he moved into adulthood as well. During a time when the music business didn't really understand musician poets, Norman stood firm with the concept he created, Underground Streets. 
Listening to his work now, I am absolutely amazed at how far ahead of his time he actually was. Norman also wrote prose, usually focusing on things that were his passion, like black quarterbacks in the NFL. He worked for a time for the NAACP magazine, The Crisis. Again, always a fierce advocate for black rights. A big part of Norman's life was the pride he felt working for the great Harry Belafonte. He was able to travel around the world, and his discipline was well known to all the people in the Belafonte crew. And all the while, he wrote poetry, music, and a great deal more. With all he was doing, Norman took time to nurture other writers. He held a weekly writer's workshop in his apartment, imparting his knowledge to literally scores of aspiring writers. He could be demanding, but I think his students were the better for it. Norman had what some might call quirks, things he approached differently than most. He was a vegetarian well before it became fashionable. He refused to celebrate holidays, not even his birthday. He considered most modern technology to be somewhat akin to voodoo, and he avoided it at all costs. He was a compulsive news wa watcher, much preferring news to TV shows. For him, the known world, by the way, ended at the Hudson River. I remember him browbeating me when we first moved to New Jersey, repeating over and over and over again, you moving to Jersey? Yet most of all, my brother was generous. If you were his family or his friend and needed something, Norman was there for you. He'd give you the shirt off his back, and if he was shirtless, he'd borrow one to give you. I'm going to miss my brother far more than I can put into words. I ride my bike five days a week, and since his passing, I swear I can hear his voice. Silently, I just mouth, Norman, I love you. Quietly, I wait. I wait. Quietly. Just to hold. Just to touch. Someone. Something. different sides of a highway and the road that lies between us stretches so wide that I cannot reach out and touch you but I can see you clearly watch you from a distance Carefully, softly, intently, quietly. The bigness of your face mystifies me, takes me to places I've always wanted to go. Quiet places, distant places, close places. The image of your smile stays with me at night when I'm alone.
on the fire escape, looking out into the clouds, passing gently through the sky. But we cannot wrap our arms around each other. Between us lies time and space and emptiness. And so I search, search deep inside myself and quietly outside in the world to find some way, somehow, to cross over that wideness of highway because I want so badly just to, just to touch you, you know? A man whose feelings touch nothing but time and space is a lonely man. A man with a seed and no womb to plant it in is an empty man. The image of your smile stays with me at night when I'm alone on the fire escape, looking out into the clouds passing gently through the sky. I wait and search, and wait and search, just to hold, just to touch someone, something. Quietly.